Welcome back to PCO's Executive Speaker Series, a series where we provide our clients unfettered access to candid conversations with industry-leading CEOs, executives, and entrepreneurs on the most interesting topics of today. I'm Dylan Zabel, a principal at Patrickoff Co., and today I sat down with Ryan Shannon, investor at Radical Ventures, to discuss the artificial intelligence landscape. We talked about the latest developments in AI technology, the different types of artificial intelligence out there, and how to think about investing in this rapidly evolving industry. Hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you have any questions or would like to be connected with Ryan directly, please do not hesitate to reach out. Ryan, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, Dylan, and excited to be doing this with you. It's already fun. Yeah, of course. Um, so maybe to kick it off, Ryan, you could just kind of tell us a little bit about um, your professional background and about Radical. Yeah, definitely happy to kick off. Um, as Dylan mentioned, I'm, I'm based in Toronto here at Red Radical Ventures headquarters, which is where I'm from originally, but, but spent my most of my career in a, in a fashion that will sound very, very familiar to Dylan. Uh, started in investment banking. Uh, after that, I worked at a, a private equity firm called TPG Capital, which is where I met Dylan. Uh, we worked together for two years there. TPG is a traditional uh, global bio firm, so focused on leveraged bios, pay privates, corporate cargos, things like that, and, and of that nature. Uh, after TPG, I, I went to business school. I did my MBA at HBS, also with Dylan, so a lot of familiarity between us, but took a path uh, back home and also into the early stage investing world post-HBS and doing Radical two years ago. Radical is an early stage, as Dylan mentioned, an early stage AI focused venture firm. So we only invest in artificial intelligence uh, businesses, whether that be the horizontal enabling technologies powering them or vertical specific applications of how you can use AI in different use cases and industries and markets. Radical was founded uh, in 2017 and our first fund was launched in 2019. So a long time before the, what I described as the recent AI craze. So, so Believe it or not, we've been doing this for a long time, although in the world of AI, what, what classifies as a long time is, is only a couple of years. Uh, the reason for the, the founding story behind Radical was that our co-founders had built and sold a machine learning business called Layer 6. Um, and in that process of building it and kind of working with VCs and venture capital, kind of saw a big gap in the market for an AI and ML-focused venture fund. So they went out and raised institutional capital uh, and now we basically always focus on making seed and series A investments into early stage AI businesses. So maybe I'll pause there, but happy to dig into more. No, that's great. And maybe just give us um, a little bit of an inside scoop of uh, what it's kind of been like to work kind of really right at like the epicenter of this industry as things have really blown up in the last year. Yes, it's been pretty wild. Um, when I joined Radical originally in 2020, um, nobody cared about AI. And in fact, a lot of people were very skeptical about whether or not it could ever be a useful enabling technology or whether there's any pro any promise behind it. Um, I think for the first couple of years where we were here, we knew and academic researchers knew and people in big tech companies knew that there was something really big here that would be transformative and could affect a bunch of companies and the way people do business and, and consumers. But I don't think Honestly, even we knew how fast it would tip and how fast it would change to become incredibly mainstream. I, I knew this would happen eventually, but I thought it would take a lot longer than it did. Uh, so it's been a pretty exciting position to be in. So like I mentioned, at first, I think we were on an island and folks, we thought we were crazy. Now, I think we're, we're people think we're geniuses. I'm sure the answer is somewhere in the middle. 
uh, but it's, a fun, it's been a fun time, if not overwhelming, a little bit to see the amount of progress that's been made in the space over the last, honestly, even in the last quarter has been pretty astounding. Right. It's definitely been um, interesting to keep track of it in the news. I feel like like you miss a week and you've missed yeah. seven different breakthroughs that have happened. So, yeah. It's funny you mentioned that, that people all the time ask me what books can they read to kind of get up to date on AI or kind of get the latest and greatest. And the unfortunate answer is it's totally impossible to have a book because by the time it goes through a publishing process and is released to the public, it's already outdated. Uh, so it certainly is a very fast moving space. Nice. Well, maybe we'll circle back at the end of like how you kind of stay up to date on the space, but um, maybe to kind of give people a little bit of a lay of the land here first, why don't we do some kind of one-on-one level questions? And if you could just give people an overview of like, when people say AI, what are they actually talking about? What are the different types of AI out there? Um, help us kind of understand the vocabulary here. Yeah, so that, that makes sense. So taking us back to the, the very beginning, the original concept of AI probably can be dated back to like the 1940s. So it's been around a very long time. And with that, I would say the advent of the digital computer. Uh, AI is simply, artificial intelligence, is simply the science of how computers can think like humans. Um, that's basically, or how they understand humans, if something I've paraphrased that. So it started back in the 1940s uh, with, with the initial advent of the digital computer. But the, the concept of AI for a long time was very basic. It was based on if, if statements and nested rules and kind of like a rules-based algorithm that was, was fairly unsophisticated. So for a very long time, uh, there was a long gap of period of what people might call an AI winter, which there was pretty minimal development in, in the, the universe of AI. Where this really started to change was in the early 2000s and particularly it spiked around in 2012 with the advent of uh, something called deep learning. Now, historically, a concept called machine learning, uh, which was very similar to AI, uh, I guess is a subset of AI, was basically trying to use large volumes of data to train machines and allow computers to understand and, and basically interpret the results of the data and, and think for themselves. That had never proved effective until deep learning came around, which frankly was just, let's just crank the data volumes like to, a, to 11 and introduce about 100x or 1,000x or a million X in some cases, the so amount deep of just data, meant like going way, deep, way far. Basically meant like cube, cube the amount of data or something that has been being implemented. And all of a sudden, starting in 2012, a lot of the machine learning applications actually started to really work. So there was a an image recognition uh, competition in 2012 uh, in which a, a, a program, a, a neural net called AlexNet was for the first time in, in the history of AI able to perform at human level doing image recognition. It was simply just deciding whether something was a cat or a dog, which sophisticated, like from a sophistication perspective, is not a big deal, but from a breakthrough perspective, kind of reignited everybody's focus and excitement about the area. And so in a post-2012 era, everything has been focused on, the, they're almost used synonymously, AI, ML, deep learning, are basically only used as, as interchangeable terminology because that's really the main form of technology that exists today. That's the high level overview of like kind of how the technology works. Mm -hmm. When you kind of break that down into what are the specific kind of forms of deep learning um, that have gotten a lot of traction today, the, the way I generally think about it is that there are a few different modalities or, or types of data that they work with. So there's 
something called NLP, which is natural language processing, which is going to become the most popular and the most prevalent. That's where all these large language models built by companies like OpenAI um, exist. And that's what powers ChatGPT and things like that. So that's how do computers and humans interact with language and share language. And there's something called computer vision, which is based on how computers see the world. So that's uh, that would be things like within the autonomous driving world would roll up into that. That would be image recognition. That would be work on manufacturing lines. And the third bucket that I would say is the most new um, and certainly been the, the, the most buzzy in, in the last few weeks have been this category of generative models where it's not just about understanding language or interpreting vision, but actually creating new content. Uh, the majority of this has been done through something called diffusion models. But basically, the, the, the use cases I think folks have gotten really excited about have gotten a lot of traction in the media and newspapers and things like that has been creating images and creating videos um, from scratch or from nothing, which is true net new to the world that has never been created before. So that's certainly been the most interesting use case recently that I think folks are probably most familiar with. And so if you were to kind of like break that down at like a base, very basic, basic level of like what's happening, it's like, is it fair to say the computer is taking in like a bunch of different precedent examples of stuff that humans have created and then using that to kind of like make its own best guess of what it thinks, whatever you're asking it for should be. That's exactly right. But I think some of the really interesting stuff when you start to peel back the onion is, is quite fascinating. So the way that computers reason is not the same way that people reason. So when you give them a bunch of data and they go from taking that data to getting to an output, they don't follow the same logical steps of reasoning that a, that a human would. Like they may not be like, what is the subject of the image? Like, what is a reference drawing? How can I draw them? And then I draw the background, then I draw the background. They have effectively some, frankly, totally ununderstandable human beings, computer logic that exists behind everything about how they interpret to get from point A to point B. So if you were to pick point A and point B on a piece of paper, um, a human might draw a straight line to get from point A to point B. A computer might have a totally zigzagging, scrolling line that goes all over the place, but still gets to the same place. And so that is kind of the interesting emergent property of AI and ML that I think was what was the enigma in the research community for so long of it's totally impossible for the computer to think exactly like a human, but what you can do is get them to the same endpoint. I think that's where a lot of the excitement is coming from. Um, maybe help us understand kind of based on that, like I guess across these three categories of AI, if that's the right way to think about it, like who are the, the major players that people should yeah at least be familiar with, even though this is kind of a, a burgeoning and emerging space. Yeah, so I, I think that's that's definitely the right way to start to frame it and think about it. So basically every research organization out there or big tech company will have some presence in, in kind of all three of the buckets that we went through, but a few are more notable than others. So if you start with uh, the, the category that is far and away the most advanced and the most prolific and, and probably ends up being the largest is language. So natural language processing NLP. As a reminder, this is this is what LLMs or what uh, OpenAI's platform with ChatGPT is based off of this language. LLMs, language yeah. learning model? Large, large language model. Large very language model, okay, yeah. close. <laughs> um, very close. So um, the, the language is the most prevalent, I think probably the best example. So in 2017, I think I'm getting the dates right, uh, is when there was a big breakthrough 
in language technology, something called a transformer, was discovered by the researchers at Google Brain. So Google's the original inventor of this technology that effectively made language models way, way, way more accurate. Um, and, and in practice, it made them usable, it made them unusable to usable. So Google um, was actually the first to have what I would describe as modern AI technology in their systems. And so that first was used to power Google Translate. So when Google Translate was updated in 2018, it became way more accurate. It was due to this AI breakthrough. And then it started to roll through search, I believe in 2019, where it was the single largest efficiency driving development to the search algorithm in, in Google's history, basically had the largest bottom line impact of any technological breakthrough. When you have that level of impact within an organization, it starts to leak out and a lot of other people take notice. And so other big tech providers out there started to build out their own AI teams back in, in this era. And so the folks who started to adopt things at that time are the most advanced. So that would be Google, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, to some degree, Meta and Apple are also fairly advanced in these categories. And those all sit within large big tech companies where AI has historically been developed, at least up until this point in time, has primarily been at universities and research institutions. So, so the other side of the spectrum would be Harvard, Stanford, MIT, University of Toronto here in Canada have kind of all been large contributors to AI research, um, although the, the baton has been largely passed over to industry at this point where a lot of the breakthroughs come through. Those are the, the high-level landscape of all the things that are going on, but the one, the one organization that you have to always talk about is a company called OpenAI, which folks might be familiar with at this point, but they were basically effectively acquired by Microsoft a few months ago, and they are the developers of, of ChatGPT or, or GPT-3 or 4 or kind of whatever product you want to point towards. OpenAI was started as a nonprofit research institution based in the Bay Area with an express goal of funding the development of artificial general intelligence, AGI. AGI basically means an AI that can do everything better than a human. So it can do, it can hire people, it can fire people, it can do mathematical problems, it can solve biological problems, it can be a manager, it can respond to customer support queries, it can do everything. So it's a, it's a very aspirational goal, something that I think many sci-fi movies have been based off of. Um, so OpenAI was, was started to kind of fund the pursuit of this uh, I think five or six years ago. And as they sort of developed and scale, they made the decision to privatize and become more of a for-profit entity, but kept the research institute mantra. So they hired the largest number of PhDs in, in AI and ML of the world who kind of do all of the specific AI research. Um, they built the largest language model. So they basically put the most money into building the models that will kind of think and, and deliver for AI. And then they were the first to productize it with ChatGPT, which I think was the, to me, the biggest breakthrough moment was it went from being a cool research tool that academics could use to being a consumer facing tool out there that other folks can use. With the prolific growth of ChatGPT, OpenAI has kind of exploded and, and become a huge organization with a ton of development power that's pushing a lot of the technology forward. So they're certainly at the center of where a lot of AI and ML development is today, but but the the OG origin story actually goes to Google. Uh, although I think they're they're a little unhappy with, with where they fall in the ranking today. Got it. That's super interesting. So now when you hear about like, I feel like now every you know every company out there under the sun is incorporating AI in some flavor or another. When you hear that, and like from my perspective, I don't really know what that means, but from your perspective, does that mean they are 
generally, like working on an internal AI tool that they're developing themselves, or are they like buying that from like maybe a vendor out there in the marketplace? What is that? When you hear that, what do you, where does your brain go? Yeah, so I would say um, working with AI is a very big statement. So when you drill down to the next level, there's a few different kind of decision nodes where things fall out. So um, if you are inherently the way AI works is there are models, which is basically a, a gigantic piece of code in which a bunch of data is run through it. And then the model learns how to interpret data in large volumes to be accurate for general purpose things. These models are absolutely gigantic, like they're billions of parameters long, or there's billions of variables in them, but effectively they're a gigantic uh, decision tree or model or, or, or statistical connection of, of different bullet points. Uh, if you are building your own models, you have to train your own models, which means that you have to purchase a bunch of data or, or acquire it or scrape it or something feed it to your models and you train them, which basically means just feeding them data, tons and tons of data over and over again, uh, until the model is now smart and can do a variety of those tasks. You can also eventually fine tune models into smaller amounts of specific data. So you could have a general model that you fine tune for a specific use case or something. That's all training and that's all incredibly expensive in which you have to, A, forget how you get the, the large amount of data. You basically have to use supercomputers um, to process the data through the model in any amount of time that would be reasonable. If you try to use a regular computer or a regular GPU or something, it would take you like a million years to train the model. Um, and so you need to use supercomputers out there that basically process this information and run it. It'd be as if you had a computer program on your computer that was incredibly sophisticated, and very demanding, you needed hundreds of GPUs to run it. That's kind of, kind of the, the end point. So returning to your question, to actually go and build and train your own model is prohibitively expensive, um, often in the orders of, of hundreds of millions of dollars. So not every company can actually go out and do that. So the way that that, and, and they shouldn't, by the way. Um, so the way that it works in practice is there'll be large models um, that focus on a specific modality, which means type of data. Um, and then other people will build something on top of it or fine tune, which means customize it on specific use case they use. So OpenAI's uh, like GPT-4 is a good example of a foundation model for text. There's a bunch of others out there for video and images and things like that. Mm -hmm. People who are building with AI almost always are using somebody else's underlying foundation model. Um, they could also use, there's a variety of open source ones as well. So that that is like 99% of people who are building and working with AI because the, the capital intensity of training models is so high. The, that is out there who actually know how to do it is actually very limited. So the vast majority of businesses aren't doing that. Now, there is then a sliding spectrum of how much technical complexity are you layering on top of that model. Um, if you are just querying the model, like via ChatGPT and getting things back, there's obviously no technical wrapper on top of it. You're just having um, OpenAI or GPT power everything. But there's a variety of use cases in which people build some proprietary tooling or technology, or they will fine tune the model, meaning they'll customize it to a data set to make it more unique to what they're specifically doing. That does require some amount of technical complexity. So if you wanted to use um, a foundation model only for medical records or something, and you're looking at specifically uh, electronic health records of, of patients and you were trying to anonymize them or pull out some sort of downstream trend, you might fine tune, so customize 
the broader model on a specific healthcare data set to make it more accurate and specific with healthcare things, and then run that. And that might be your business where you're in charge of fine tuning and procuring that data. You're still almost never training the underlying model. So long answer, there's a long spectrum of the way things fall out, but the reason people are, are kind of obsessed with these things called foundation models is they are inherently the foundation on which other things are built on top. Got it. That makes sense. I just want to kind of double click a little bit on that cost that it takes to like build those foundation models. Like obviously there's a lot of computing power, which takes a lot of energy and electricity and that costs money, but like how much, um, apart from that, like what's the actual, like what is the, I guess, work that people are doing? To what extent are people involved? You've heard story, like people might've seen stories in the news about AI companies hiring people for $300,000 a year to like check pictures or something like that. Like what's the actual like effort that's going in there? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, there are a few different uh, places in which humans interact with, with kind of a model. So there are the, the people who are focused on training the model. So they are making sure that the right data is fed in, making sure it's ingested in the right way. Um, these typically are folks like machine learning engineers um, or sometimes data scientists and, and folks of that ilk who are basically managing the model itself and all the data that goes in and out. If you move upstream from above that to wait, what is the actual data we're putting in and where is that coming from and, and what does it look like? You get a variety of, of kind of less technical um, job descriptions effectively. So there are people who are labelers. So they're literally looking at uh, all the data and labeling it manually themselves, much of which is still done very manually today, um, oftentimes in lower cost countries. Then there are people who are um, in charge of procurement of data. So they are figuring out what's the most valuable data that we can pump into our model. Where can I buy it from? How can I kind of Steer it in. And so that, that is everything I would say is that the pre model performance and then post the model existing, that's where you get into traditional engineering um, types of, of work where the model exists, it is functional. How are we going to make this into a product? Um, and that's where, like in OpenAI's example, there would be an army of engineers who have built out the ChatGPT UI and interface um, and rules to basically make it functional and usable um, by individual consumers. So there is a whole spectrum of kind of rules in there and in kind of how technical and non-technical they are. I would say the vast majority of the headcount is probably uh, done on the labeling side um, where people are curating the data. Got it. And could you break, if you were to say like, say one of these language large models would cost $100 million or something, the rough breakdown of like what of that is computing power and what of that is people? Yeah, it's almost all computing power okay. um, in practice. So if you look at like, let's say it's $100 million spent on training, which would be a giant, very, very large model that would be like amongst the biggest in the world. I would say like 80 to 90% of that um, is probably in the computing side of the house and, and very minimal amount is in, in the headcount. Um, sometimes businesses will also go and spend a lot of money on data procurement. Mm -hmm. For language models, you don't have to do that as much because the internet exists for free and, and you can scrape it. So it's actually the single best data source out there for AI because there's a ton of highly valuable text data for free. Um, so it's a large language model that they're actually generally paying less for data. If you're looking at things in vision or video, you might be spending more money on the data procurement side. But, but to answer your question directly, I would say it's at least 80% is, is literally spent on what you're paying 
NVIDIA or whoever's serving it, maybe it's AWS or GCP or, or someone who's actually serving it and doing the training for you. Got it. That's crazy. Um, maybe switching gears a little bit. So like, obviously there's been a ton of stuff happening in the news this year, like every week, day, month, whatever, it seems like there's yeah. been some new advance in like the AI technology. And people often talk about, you know, we're kind of riding this exponential growth curve in AI. Um, maybe just tell us a little bit more about like, why is it happening? And like, why does it seem like the pace of innovation is accelerating? Yeah, so it's, it's a good question. It's something that I don't have a perfect answer for you on, because uh, I think some of this starts to just get into general human psychology, as well as how connected of a world we have today with social media and things like that, that the things can just snowball at, at paces they haven't been able to in, in periods of history. Um, one thing I would start with is that the, the vast majority of uh, hyper-effective AI research breakthroughs happened around 2017, that that's when the transformers, as I alluded to before, were invented by Google. That has been the single largest research breakthrough, but it, it basically took language models from being unusable and uninteresting to being usable and very interesting. So most of the development, I would say, in the last, particularly in the last year, has actually been on the products and implementation and engineering and kind of creative side. I think the research has not kept pace with the proliferation of use cases. And by that, I mean, historically, there was a very small group of people in the world who understood how powerful and interesting AI was. Um, but in the recent, I don't know, call it three to six months, everybody in the world has now seen how useful it is. So you went from a very small group of people building with it to now a very large group of people that are building with it. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, people who have been traditional software engineers and software developers historically couldn't build with AI because it was too complicated. As the technical bar has come down, become more approachable, you can build on top of foundation models and do interesting things. All of a sudden, all of the historical supply of the kind of software developers have kind of been unlocked, which is why every week, month, day at this point, like you're seeing an incredibly new, interesting use case that, that no one ever thought of before. Uh, so it's almost in a very loose sense, kind of like you've open sourced AI and ML to the whole software development community of the world, and, and people are doing a ton of cool and interesting stuff with it. Got it. And is maybe to, to push on that a little more, is there something like inherent in these large models that like the bigger they get, the faster they grow or it, and that's in the same way, like, you know, we are all familiar with, I don't know, exponential growth in the context yeah. of like COVID, for example, where you're yeah. having this doubling effect. Is it yeah. analogous to that or is that not like a, a I, fair analogy? I think it, it starts to flatten out um, for a couple of reasons. So just making the model bigger um, has major diminishing returns in itself. Uh, what matters more is the quantity and quality of data. But like I mentioned, um, the best data set in the world for AI is the internet. And there's a ton of new content being created every day, but it's not doubling every day. Uh, it's not replacing itself every day. So at this point in time, most language models have been trained on the full corpus of the internet, like from maybe six months ago or something like that. So the data in which language models compete on is actually kind of stagnated. Um, and so as people look for more developments and making them better, there needs to be either new tricks and techniques to train the model or make the models more effective, or there needs to be a way to, to label and clean the data better. But, but those are kind of more resource intensive, time intensive. Right. For right. that reason, um, I think that's why things like 
GPT-5 is not expected to come out for a long time, the next iteration of OpenAI, because they, they've kind of done a lot of the work they can do in language modeling today. What I think is the very tip of the iceberg, though, is all of the interesting ways in which you can use this already very effective language modeling techniques. So if you think about the early innings of the internet, I don't think anybody would have forecasted the amount of super interesting businesses and business models that would come out of the internet. You know, like I, I highly doubt anybody with the internet's inception would have ever forecasted TikTok or something like that emerging. But when TikTok comes out and utilizes the technology from internet and mobile, uh, that can spread like wildfire for sure. Got it. Um, cool. So maybe let's um, let's talk a little bit about kind of your guys' investment strategy at Radical and how you think about like what are the criteria that you're looking for when you're evaluating um, an AI company and how does like the fact that there is this you know innovation happening very quickly affect how you think about you know deploying capital in that environment? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the short answer is it's scary. Um, the, the speed in which the industry evolves uh, certainly makes me very nervous. And, and as an investor, as, as I'm sure you'd appreciate, you certainly don't uh, want to lose money and you don't want your capital to go to zero and there's some new headline or breakthrough that comes through. So thinking about what we describe as defensibility in the realm of AI is top of mind for us every day. And it's something that I think is a little bit of an open question, but, but we've certainly started to take a point of view and a strategy around it. So, there are kind of two main factors that I kind of think about when I think about the defensibility um, of deploying, making investments in AI. One is on the talent side. Um, so if you think about the technical defensibility of companies, there's actually a huge supply and demand in this bench right now and the amount of people out there who can actually work with, build, train, develop um, artificial intelligence systems. There's very limited numbers of people you think about who's actually qualified to do it. So when you break that down into specific subject matter expertise, there's actually a lot of people out there in the world who credibly are like the only people in this world who are qualified to do something. So those types of teams are the ones that we get really excited about where we meet somebody who is the leading world's uh, basically researcher and, and, and academic around synthetic data, which is creating fake new data. And if you are the only person based on where you've been, where you've trained, uh, who's well positioned to have a finger on the pulse of what's going on in the category, but more importantly, you're probably best positioned to react to new developments in the space and stay on top of things. I think that's something that we get really excited about. I don't think that historically was viewed as a real moat or asset in traditional software, like having somebody who is like the very best coder in the world or software developer, I don't think is really defensible in the way that it's an AI, but given how fast the industry is moving and how technically complex a lot of this still is, we view backing world-leading academics and researchers as being like a key part of our strategy. So mm -hmm. I think something like 75% of radical portfolio companies have a PhD in machine learning on the founding team. That is incredibly abnormal. There's very few PhDs out there. There's very few PhDs who become founders. So that certainly is a, is a very radical looking deal um, and founding team where we try and find who is the world leading team and subject matter expert in a category and back to go build something interesting. Mm -hmm. in the other side of the house is what I would describe as like the true underlying business fundamentals of, of defensibility. There's lots that have been written about economic moats historically. It's famously discussed by, by Warren Buffett. There's 
things like size advantages and cost advantages and distribution advantages and all these other things. I think all of those are, are relevant and valuable, but one that's really interesting in the world of AI is kind of an emergent mode that I describe often as a data mode, meaning that if you think about what actually makes AI work, it's the data. And if you have a unique data set that's better than everybody else's, you will forever have an advantage in a category. And that often snowballs for a lot of AI businesses where because you are you have the best offering and nobody else can, can work with you, you can collect more data, more customers work with you, and all of a sudden you, you kind of get an unfair runaway advantage. So when we think about AI businesses that are defensible and are really unique, we look for ones that have access to a proprietary data set, whether they have a partnership with an organization or they've kind of scraped it themselves in a, in a unique and interesting way, or they have a huge user base that's kind of generating unique and interesting um, data and insights, mm -hmm. such that even if somebody else tries to go out and do the same thing a few weeks later, they have a huge amount of catch-up that they have to play. And, and, and our, our thesis, at least in the early innings, is that a lot of these businesses that develop the best data sets will win and, and will be really tough to kind of approach. Um, all of that is a lot easier said than done. Um, and right. looking for businesses with those characteristics is hard and rare. And things are more subjective than kind of how I, I laid it out. But those are kind of the two main pillars that I think about. Got it. And when you're thinking about kind of these categories that we discussed earlier in terms of people building like a foundation model versus people building on top of that, do you guys yeah. look at both types of businesses? We, we will look at both types of businesses. I would say we have invested more so and heavily in foundation models probably than any other investment firm out there. It's certainly become an area of expertise for us, but that doesn't mean we won't look at what I would describe as applied AI businesses. When looking at applied AI businesses or companies that are building on foundation models themselves, we usually still try to look for the same kind of modes that, that we just talked about. In some unique end markets or use cases or, or really complex things, sometimes having a real technical advantage really matters and understanding kind of what the uniqueness of the category is. If you're in a regulated industry or a very complex underlying mathematical problem that you're solving, sometimes it really helps to have technical teams. Um, but where I think applied AI businesses are really best suited to take off is when they can kind of collect the, that data that I alluded to before. So if you, if you maybe aren't building proprietary technology on top of foundation model, but you have an, the best data set out there and you can apply it in a way better method than anybody else. Those are really exciting businesses. Yeah. And some of them have grown like total rocket ships out there where a company that may not have a, a PhD and ML on staff or any kind of deep understanding in AI has such a valuable data asset that they can build awesome businesses on top of that. Hmm. That's cool. Um, so maybe, so when you find like, based on all these kind of characteristics that we've talked about, you find a company and a founding team that you really like. How do you think about like valuing a business like this, given that a lot yeah. of these companies, I think, aren't even generating revenue yet. They're still building yeah, their product and there's a, there's a lot of way to, a lot of way to go. Yeah, I, I've gone in a lot of uh, circles on this topic um, historically. As, as you know, I come from a, a later stage private equity investing background. So marrying- Yeah, this isn't a business services company yeah, anymore. Yeah, it's not. So, so marrying the- uh, true, correct, Warren Buffett-style value investing uh, valuation techniques with how things are done in VC can kind of give you a headache really quickly. The, the way that I basically shook out on explaining it is that venture capital is effectively an expected value game, where uh, a lot of businesses have a ton of different failure modes in which they could fail on execution, they could get out-competed, they... Uh, could have founder strike where founders break up. There's all these different things 
in which you can envision a business failing. Um, but if a business were to be successful and were to have everything go right and were to take off and were to kind of generate and compound, um, could it become something really big and really exciting? And that's really how, as simplistic as it sounds, a lot of math works. So if you're looking at a foundation model business in which the, it has a large amount of capital intensity and you have to spend a lot of money, honestly, in some ways it looks a little bit like a hardware business with how much money you have to spend on data and compute and training and things like that. You have to really believe that this could be a gigantic industry-defining company on the other side in order for the math to make the math work. Um, it's a lot easier to kind of make the math work for an application business or apply AI business in which they don't have that level of capital intensity. And so at the end of the day, it basically comes down to how big do you think this can be and what do you think the probability of success of this team is going to be and, and things kind of go from there. As the nature and, and, and outcome of that, eventually these businesses have to start to pick up real revenue and have real kind of economics and, and, and kind of um, underlying financial indicators that make sense to the growth investors that come in down the road. Um, but at the early stage, those things don't exist. And so you kind of have to use some other heuristic to get there. And so thinking about kind of that like long-term, what are these businesses like when they're actually making money on the application side? Like that makes sense. Like they're selling software basically. Yeah, very similar, the, to, SaaS. Yeah, very similar to SaaS that like everyone knows, but on the foundation model side, what are your guys' views on like, how does this like open AI, for example, like how do they, I don't know if they're making money now or obviously they've raised a lot of money for Microsoft, but like, what does that business model actually look like for them down yeah. the road? So, so OpenAI is an interesting use case because, or an interesting example, I mean, because they have an underlying foundation model, but they also have consumer-facing products. So they have ChatGPT, which is a subscription product. People pay for it now. Um, and so that's, that's its own business line separately. So they, they've basically like gone full stack and built their own app, kind of like a killer app on top of their underlying technology as a way of A, monetizing, but B, also inspiring other people to build on top of it. So they're slightly different use cases. If you think about just foundation models themselves, the best comparable analogy would be to um, cloud providers out there. So if you think about AWS, GCP, Azure, increasingly Oracle, um, that's basically the underlying cloud businesses that power all of the software that, that you and I and all business users use. That is kind of the right business analogy or certainly the one that we believe in for a lot of these businesses in which you're taking a small take rate or a small number of pennies or something for the time that the model is queried or used. So unlike in cloud where you get charged based on storage or like how much of the storage space you're using is typically volume-based, um, for foundation model businesses, it's primarily going to be based on usage. So how often are you querying the model? What are you asking for? Obviously, more, more intensive requests will cost more. Mm -hmm. From a business model perspective, I think that means it starts to look a lot more like a Twilio or a Stripe, which is an infrastructure business in which you charge uh, consumers on usage-based pricing. Mm -hmm. uh, you think of it like a utility problem. in some ways? Yeah. In like some, and that's actually another analogy that folks have made is it's kind of like a utility, the way that like the amount of electricity you use in your home this month is what you'll be charged for. Um, so somewhere in between those analogies, I think, is where the truth will shake out. Got it. Interesting. Um, maybe switching gears a little bit to kind of like thinking about some of these broader questions, because I'm sure you guys think about this a lot in terms of how AI is going to impact 
society. I know it's not like what you're necessarily investing on, but you, you're in the mix, obviously. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think in terms of like areas of the workforce that are going to be disrupted most by AI and um, or jobs that maybe even be, might be helped by AI? Or how do you guys think of that um, in terms yeah. of kind of a, a big societal impact? Yeah, it's a really important question. It's something we think about every day. I have an evolving perspective on this. Like I feel like every week that goes by, my opinion changes slightly. But but in terms of where I am right now, I think in general, um, AI will create way more economic value than it displaces. So I think like the if you look at the total factor productivity or just total labor productivity or whatever uh, of a country, using United States United States as an example. I think that will almost undoubtedly increase over time. However, um, it will make some jobs way more efficient, where certain people can do way more with less and create more output. But it also may make some jobs less relevant and less valuable. So I do think you'll see a change over in the labor force a little bit, um, or, or potentially a lot, depending on proliferation. I think the areas in which things are most likely to get disrupted probably tie hand in hand with the things that are the easiest to develop from an AI perspective. So right now, we're at least the furthest along the maturity curve. So right now, I would say um, areas within language are certainly the ones where the earliest disruption is starting to be felt. Um, I think the marketing copy and, and basically content marketing industry has probably been the first to kind of be seriously moved and rocked already by, by AI. A lot of historical content you see online for inbound marketing or kind of marketing self-promotion and things like that um, has already been replaced by AI-generated content. So when you're on websites and they're, they're generating these news articles to get you to use their product or whatever, almost all of that is AI-generated already. And so a lot of jobs in that those types of industries, I think, have been disrupted. Um, so anything in, in like a language-heavy use case in which there's not very specific regulation or very specific and interesting uh, nuances to being a good decision maker. So if you look at other industries in which I think you get a more nuanced take, you look at the field of legal and law. Law is probably the most language heavy space that exists out there. The interpretation, the specific ways you interpret things, uh, the specific ways that you think of precedent, the ways that you adjudicate, everything comes down to, to the human language at the end of the day. And so I think it's a really interesting space and use case for, for where AI can be valuable and disruptive. Um, I think when you think about what in the ways in which the law is used or, or law firms work, there is a very manual set of tasks. So research, form generation, filing things, searching precedent that I think is already in, in, is in the early innings of being very disruptive. Um, and there's a lot of ways dealing with the work that paralegals do or first-year associates at law firms do. A lot of that stuff, I think, is already being um, implemented with, with AI and being disrupted. Mm -hmm. But if you think about what very senior folks do in the law, which is be creative and interpret documents effectively and negotiate and argue and uh, have client relationships and socialize, none of that is, is kind of really disruptable, at least not in the near term. So it's an interesting use case in which the top of the pyramid, Soviet, is actually very well insulated and protected, but the bottom is less so. And then you get into a discussion of, well, even if you made the associate's job largely irrelevant at a law firm, don't you still want them being trained to kind of move their way yeah. up? So there's interesting conundrums in a lot of these firms that are going on right now. Um, but that, that would be my short answer. It's like anything in which there's a lot of language work 
not particularly nuanced, I think is one of the first dominoes to fall. Interesting. What do you guys think about AI coming for your job as a venture capitalist? I, I do, although less so than I probably would if I were like a financial analyst or a hedge fund analyst. I think yep. uh, so much of venture is meeting people and there's gut feel and making educated guesses and, and networking and, and things like that, that I actually think venture is, is fairly well insulated. There's certainly ways I think to make my job a lot more productive uh, and, and uh, you know, especially in terms of prospecting and looking for things. But in my opinion, there's no job that won't be significantly affected. I think every job out there, the same way that when the internet uh, emerged, every job in the world changed. As far as I know, there's no, basically no job out there in which the internet is not used in any way, shape, or form at all. Um, and so I think that'll happen to a lot of things, meaning the job market will evolve. There might be slightly different roles that exist within the same company that people can port over. Like you may work less with debugging code and more with affecting the prompts in which people are putting into your system, but you're, you're kind of still a technical engineer. Um, it's very, very hard to specifically say what are the new jobs and roles that will emerge, but I, I think every industry and every space is going to have some movement. Got it. Um, another thing, like, kind of just it's been talked about a lot is, like, how AI relates to kind of bias and disinformation and the, you know, potential there to have a lot of I guess potentially like harmful yeah. outcomes. I guess what are you guys seeing in terms of one, what companies are doing as they're thinking about building their products to protect against that, but then also I guess just kind of what's out there in terms of you know bad actors using this poorly or like how uh, how this kind of plays out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like all new technologies, uh, potentially very scary when you think about how bad actors could use it. So I think a huge part of uh, the development of AI is going to be a focus on security, compliance, and, and just general ethical usage of AI. The, the, the problem is that, as we talked about earlier, is that the space is moving so fast that our regulatory bodies that, that are you know, set up to be deliberate and slow and intentional with decision-making around these lot of things, really just it's just not plausible to imagine them keeping up with a lot of the technological development. And so I think industry has to be involved a lot more in the way a lot of these things work. And ideally, a lot of successful and intelligent businesses and business models emerge as a, as a kind of defensive or counterproductive negative use cases. So something I've been thinking about a lot, um, which is certainly not novel, is uh, a dis tools that distinguish from AI-generated assets or text or videos or things like that and, and human-generated. Uh, right now, for most things, you can kind of tell if something was AI generated or human, although as the day goes by, it's getting increasingly hard. Um, so there are a few tools and things that they're emerging trying to determine if uh, text was generated by an AI or a human based on some underlying regression, or if there are deep fakes out there of people, like what is real or what is fake. A lot of those defensive things are really going to have to start to emerge. And I think probably having businesses and business models that do it is probably the right course of action given the speed needed. Um, but it's certainly a big problem um, and something that I, I hope regulators can get involved in in some way, shape or form. Um, then maybe last one, kind of the like uh, potential negative risk before we lighten it up a little bit, but in terms of, you know, how, how big a risk do you think AI is in terms of, I don't know, subjugating humanity as a uh, species and the risk of artificial yeah. general artificial intelligence taking us, taking over Earth? 
Yeah, I, I used to think it was impossible and not happening. I now think it's highly improbable. So there has been some movement. Um, I, I like to think that, well, first of all, we are so, so far away from that level of development that it's not like an imminent concern. What matters more is that the people and folks who are at the forefront working with these things are thoughtful starting today about how these things work and, and how um, security measures are implemented and fail safes are implemented and things are basically managed ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, if, if that is open and honest and deliberate and easy for folks to see, I think we are very well insulated and protected. The scary outcomes happen if you think that an incredibly small group of people are making all the decisions for everybody. I am skeptical that that will end up being ever an outcome. And I think that we are much, much, much more likely to end up in a, in a scenario in which AI does a ton of good for the world and makes things a lot better. Um, but it is enough of a concern that we should definitely think about it and do something about it. I wouldn't ignore it. I would not advise folks to do that. Um, but I'm, I am certainly on the optimistic impact of, of kind of thinking that it will be a net good for society. Got it. I think that answer is kind of a somewhat of a mix of comforting and terrifying at the same yeah, time. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's how I feel, dude. But I, I, I think, I think it will make the world a much better place. I think you could draw it. What I think is at least as likely, if not more likely, than a doomsday scenario is a scenario in which all of the labor in the world that nobody wants to do is basically abstracted away, and human beings are allowed to kind of spend way more time in creative pursuits and everybody can work a job they actually like and enjoy and people are way more fulfilled and we get to kind of a new renaissance era of humanity in which everybody's a lot happier and there's, there's way more fulfilled fulfillment and, and kind of excitement in the category as a whole. I think that is much more likely than a Skynet outcome. Um, so hopefully that is, that is where we end up. All right, well, we're rooting for that one. Um, a few quick fun ones I wanted to end on here. So. Maybe just for uh, from your perspective, like what are the ways that you actually use AI in your day-to-day -day life, if any? Yeah, so I, I use it less than I think everybody thinks I would. Um, and part of that comes down to, as I said before, my specific job venture uh, is very human, at least today, uh, where you meet with people, you're meeting with founders, you're building businesses, it's a very human job. Um, and so I use it less than I people do, think I would. The ways that I do actually use it are primarily so far for summarization. Um, so we use it for summarizing news articles, very, very long research reports. Um, one of our portfolio companies, Ebia, uh, does semantic search. So it helps you find information across Slack and Word and your file formats, and it can help me search for things and retrieve things a lot faster. So I would say for me, it's been an excellent summarization tool. I have seen some pretty crazy uses of it in other industries and things like that though, where people have basically automated away their own job by having the AI just do everything for themselves or uh, designers and creatives using it in really interesting and fascinating ways. Um, mm -hmm. You might've seen this over the last week, this uh, AI generated song uh, went viral on TikTok that was oh, implemented yeah. straight yeah. into the weekend's voices. And it's now like the number one most listened to song on TikTok in the world that was entirely AI generated. Uh, that's crazy and super interesting, but, but I have yet to have it as an exciting analogy in my day job. <laughs> nice. Um, 
another fun one kind of related to our to our audience here. So any cool use cases of AI that you've seen kind of in sports or broadcasting and media? Yeah, I, I've actually in the last six months seen a couple of really interesting ones um, in sports and, and a couple that I go into. So one being, um, if you think about uh, sports analysis and live sports and the way things work, there's obviously a whole bunch of analytics behind the house and the way things work. That's almost all tabular data. And, and it's the reason why baseball is so much more advanced than other sports because it's easier to measure things. There's been a lot of development in AI work in uh, human simulation and 3D modeling um, and just computer vision broadly, in which we've bumped into a few businesses lately that are selling into kind of major sporting companies, large sport leagues, that basically do simulation of a soccer pitch or a baseball diamond or a hockey rink or a football field um, or basketball court, where they can simulate the players on the field from the, or on the, the surface from different heights and where the ball is and everything, and basically simulate uh, in like almost perfect quality, how the game would have been different if you had done this play versus that play based on problems with historical understanding. So if you had chosen to shoot the three ball instead of the two, like what is the likelihood of how the game would have played out? Um, if you wanted to go back and look at a game and pull up five minutes into the second quarter, where was where was LeBron James versus Anthony Davis on the court? And like, were shoes untied? Like, can we scan that? It's just pretty crazy, like 3D modeling and simulation of, of things that I think is, is in the neat stage before it's gotten into like the really interesting use case stage. The other side of things where one of our portfolio companies has started to do a lot of interesting work, a company called 12 Labs, which is a video search business, is that it's able to do really interesting retrieval and analytics on sports logs. So if you wanted to see, if you're the NBA and you wanted to see every charge in the last minute of the fourth quarter or something that you scrape across your database historically like human beings are like going back and watching games and finding it but now um the, the video i can just pull up everything immediately or if you wanted to see if you are nike and you want to see every moment in the game in which um a nike check mark is visible on someone's sneakers or something like that you can now do that so there's kind of interesting analytics use cases that are starting to pop up in the sports world I have not yet seen it be used in the uh, training and development of, of athletes and things like that, but I have to imagine that's kind of already in the works and coming. Yeah. So I think there'll be a lot of cool interaction between AI and sports. Um, sports leagues tend to be really early adopters of, of new technology, so I imagine there'll be a lot. Anything to a little competitive edge? Anything to get a competitive edge or extra ad dollars if you're the, the head office or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll be able to look at it. <laughs> Um, nice. All right. Well, last one before we let you go here. So you'd mentioned earlier that you can't read books about AI because by the time it's published, that's totally out of date. So how do you kind of keep up to date on the space given, um, you know, that kind of is your day job? Yeah, it's really hard. And I am lucky that I am paid to just do this all day. So, so I have an easier time of doing it than somebody who has a different full-time job. I would say um, increasingly newspaper headlines have kind of been all over AI and everything involving in the space. So if you follow general news media, um, you're actually getting a lot of really interesting content and breaking news and kind of getting like the top of the pile of stuff that's going on in AI. So I, I've been really impressed in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, how much highly relevant coverage that there's been in AI now. So almost more important than going ultra deep every day is like looking at it every day and seeing 
than do breakthroughs given the velocity at which things move. If you really start to take a um, an interest in the category and want to go a level deeper, you can spend time reading a lot of, there's a lot of content on Twitter, there's a lot of content on LinkedIn, there's a lot of people who write blogs, there's people who share thoughts in categories that tend to be more live and up to date. Um, so, so kind of AI Twitter is actually a very fun space, although I do not have a Twitter account and I've not decided it myself. Um, and if you want to get super granular and, and want to be as deep as anybody in the world, which I, I doubt anyone in this call is, is looking to do, but I would be impressed if they were, you can actually start to read the research papers um, that get published publicly and are, are kind of released to, to the wild, which is where the true cutting edge stuff is happening is where a group of scientists from Stanford or something release a new research paper on an interesting new way to use AI. That's pretty intense and I would not necessarily recommend that to everybody, but if you wanted to max it out, that's where you would go. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been um, really great. I learned a ton and I hope everyone who joined us did as well. So thank you very much for your time. And um, yeah, I hope everyone kind of got a little smarter on AI. So yeah, that was fun. Thank you, Dylan. And thanks to everybody for joining. I uh, hope yep, everybody too. at least learned one thing. <laughs> All right. Thanks everyone for coming to our uh, latest executive speaker series and uh, we'll see you on the next one.